podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome back to Tennis Unfiltered with me, James Gray of inews.co.uk and the i newspaper. I've got George Belshaw calling in from north of the river and Calvin Beton calling in from south of the channel as he's out coaching in Germany this week. Uh, we'll hear more about the orange carpet they've rolled out for him there and much much more, I'm sure. I'm super excited to hear about it. Um, George, how are you? Uh, what's new, what's new with you? I feel like there's no injuries. You haven't been on some weird diet. You haven't been shot. Like it's quite <laughs> unusual to not have any sort of weird updates from you over the week. Yeah, I've um, I, I've been playing tennis this week. That's been good. Um, to be honest, James, I've I've had a bit of a frustrating day. I've just. I've had one of those days, and this really doesn't happen to me very often, where I've just, I've been in a mindset that I couldn't, I couldn't get going at work today. I was just really struggling. Like everything I was doing just was not feeling good. I wasn't feeling my usual productive, proactive, gloriously energetic and brilliant self. And I'm glad we're here now and have a chance to kind of have a feeling that my my day has had a better purpose because up to now it's been pretty frustrating. I had to stop work at like half four to go and cook something for an hour and a half to see if that put me back in the zone. Taxpayer dollar, working hard as always. Well, I I then came back and worked about seven, which which actually did work. My cooking tactic was good. I just needed to get away from it and then come back. So if you're ever feeling... Stuck in the stuck in a rut at work. Take yourself out, go and eat something, and you'll uh, feel a bit better. Mine can be true curry, by the way, James. It was very nice. George, this is swiftly turning into the low performance <laughs> podcast, quite frankly, um, and I don't want that. Uh, so, if we could just refrain from any more of this great life advice, that would be great. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. And Calvin, as I mentioned, you're out in uh, in Germany this week. Where, whereabouts in Germany are you? Is it Bavaria? It's called this Manning, but it's really Munich. It's about uh, I flew into Munich, and it's about 15 minutes uh, drive from the Munich airport, and I think it's about 15 minutes from Munich as well. So, okay. um, what's yeah. it like? I mean, is it, I mean, Munich's a nice enough place. Uh, the town, it's Manning. I've only been to the tennis club, which as as always in Germany, I meant to take a picture actually, but was absolutely thriving today. Um, the restaurant and bar in the club probably had 60, 70, 80 people in it uh, after we'd finished practice today. It's got full on restaurant, full Greek restaurant in the um, in the tennis club. I mean, it's it's one of the classic German. They have these sports clubs um, where they have huge football facilities, huge tennis facilities, huge swimming pools, that kind of thing. And it's one of those. Um, just really nice, yeah. Really great setup, great tournament. Um, just really professionally run. And today was just last day of qualies and loads of people watching. I say loads mm. of people. There was probably there was probably a hundred people watching uh, today. But it's again, it's last day of qualies. So, um, and just yeah, like I say, just different different world really from what you see in Britain from a tennis club or a sports club um, mm. these days. Yeah, yeah, and there are, I'm sure, myriad reasons as to why that is, but um, we've we've been through them before, and I'm sure we'll go through them again one day. Um, but we'll hear more about uh, the tournament later because it's it's the lot. I think I'm right in saying, Calvin, it's the last one remaining uh, on the turkey on carpet. Uh, so I look forward to hearing exactly what 
that looks and feels and sounds like. Uh, let's talk about some tennis, shall we? Uh, thanks very much for all the questions you sent in this week. Uh, we can't get to them all, but we will get to some of them. Um, Sharon has been in touch on uh, email, a new listener. Uh, she says, I've been listening for several months, and you're definitely my favourite tennis podcast. Thanks, Sharon. Um, I used to listen to TTP, but then discovered your pad, and I enjoy listening to you all much more. Um, I would listen to both. I think two tennis podcasts is not too many to listen to. I certainly listen to both, so I recommend both of them. Um, what does your what does? And I guess this is really a, a question for Calvin. What does a pre-match scouting report look like? As far as I can tell, it's usually the coach's job to put together a report before the match. And what is the process of putting one together? I've heard players like Djokovic and Murray are much more analytics orientated. How do their scouting reports differ from other players? And how many people typically play a role in gathering the data and putting together a tactical plan for the top players? And how, again, does this differ for doubles? So, Calvin, take away. Uh, wow, uh, could be here a while. Um, <laughs> I mean, first of all, my scouting reports tend to evolve and change how I do them, how I think the players receive the best information. So there's two ways of doing it. We, I, I, I always try and watch the pairs who we're playing against. So the LTA providers with... Dartfish videos, they have a huge database of videos from loads of doubles players um, across the top top 100 stroke 150. Um, we also have something called a PBI report, which takes all the videos. They've all been tagged, and it's, it's just a load of data telling you where players serve, uh, where players like what their favorite serves are, how, many, how often they serve there, um, how often they win the points when they serve there, what, what their best returns are. If you serve, if you if you serve to them in this area, um, what what's their best and weakest returns and, and numbers point percentage points won, and this is just for doubles, but there's a similar one for singles as well, um, where um, and then it's just it's then just a case of what you do with the information, um, and I've tended in the last year to try and simplify it quite a bit, so rather than giving. I mean, it's mainly through the players that the players that I coach, Henry and Luke and Julian. I, I would also give the, the reports to when when Jules was still playing with Henry and Skander, who now plays with Luke and Francesco, who's now playing with Henry. I'll send them all their reports. So w one of the things I used to do was send a full report to all to both players for their opponents. I, I stopped doing that in about March of this year, and then I just sent the relevant information to both players. So, for example, Henry and Luke only played Juice, so I wouldn't send them any ad side information because I just think it clogs up more information, that kind of thing. I used to tell them, I would used to go like, for example, this player serves T 40% of the time, this player serves T, uh, he serves wide X amount of the time, and he serves body this amount of the time, and on big points he does this X amount of the time. I've now changed that to whereby I now just say things if they're standout information. I figured there's there's no point, there's no relevance in me saying this player serves serves T forty percent wide, thirty percent body, thirty percent because that just means they can serve anywhere. Mm. So it doesn't it doesn't really give any any new information. But what I, I one of the things I do always tend to do with scouting, and which I always have tended to do, is I don't focus. I tend not to focus on what what they do do. It tends to be what they don't do. So if on a big point, if I've noticed that that the player serves wide less than ten percent of the time, 
I will put and, and players like definitive information. It can often come back and bite me in the ass if they don't get if if they don't get it, but they like he won't serve wide on a big ball mm. and that kind of thing. They don't like he on he's he's unlikely to serve wide or something like that. But that I find is more accurate purely because if you say something that somebody can't do, it's more likely to be relevant than if you say what they may do or what they're really good at. Um <laughs> So you're basically it, chopping you're chopping options out basically of what they're unlikely to do, and that's the same as when, when we coach anticipation in tennis. We coach it in the same way of like when a player's in this when they've shaped their body in this way, which shot can they not hit? And then you mm. go to the middle of the, the the two options that they can hit. So yeah, I, I, I was going to say a bit of a kind of two part question following up from that. It's like. Is there a difference, and you might not want to name the, the which way around it is for Luke and Henry, but is, is there a big difference in how much information they can take on? And I think is it, it feels very different to me than other sports in tennis because you are playing so many different matches in a week if you're doing well, that it, it feels a lot harder to really have like longer, successful kind of scouting missions. Like, what, Is it literally, do you think, one thing per match that's worth kind of taking forward or... What's the upper limit of that? I don't think it's one. I would always like to try and give three takeaways. If I can give three takeaways that they will take on board and remember, even if I give them six and they take away three of those things, then that's what that's what I would like. I mean, both of those guys, and to be fair, Jules would come into this category as well. They they also did their own scouting. They they all they watch and see what they see and that kind of thing and. This is in doubles. I mean, I've also done it in singles, but in doubles as well, it's it's also kind of getting this way. And I was talking with Louis Louis Kaye about it um, a couple of weeks ago, and we were saying then that it's almost like it's not that the PBI, which is the database that we use for player data, it's not that it's become pointless. It's just a lot of players have started doing the same thing. So a lot of the same things happen with a lot of players. So, for example... Not giving any deep tactics away here. That most players, if you serve I, you will usually serve T, and you will usually cross because that's the most obvious thing to do. Because if you serve T, if you get a good T serve, the returner is probably going to get it late, which means it's going to go the if it's the juice court, it's going to go inside out, and then the net player will cross. So there's not. I could sit here and send a scouting report going, "Oh, this player likes to serve I T cross," but most players are doing that now. And most players, when they're serving regular, they're serving wide and they're staying and that kind of thing. So it's that kind of stuff. Is, it, it, it's now getting more difficult to, and I, I will now only, to, and I tell the lads now that my scouting reports might sometimes be short, but that's not that I'm sacking it off. I will only give them information that I think is is important. And if I can't find anything within that. So, for example, when Henry played, um, Henry played, Salisbury and Ram last week and we both looked at the PBI and we both came to the same conclusion there weren't on Joe's um, side Rajiv's a bit different I'm not going into that um, because it's not fair and I don't think they might play them again Um, but um, on Joe's side we said you know he, he, he serves basically equal splits there's no real patterns to his serve there's no real obvious area where you would say he returns worse or he struggles on a return you know, he's a good player. He's been world number one. He's, he's won numerous slams. So there's no point in me going, oh, actually one time 
he returned this in this place on a big point. He just, you know, you've got to go out there, you've got to play your game and 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 back yourself that it's too good. But sometimes there's no real evidence on, on things. And then sometimes there might not be anything in data. I've done it that way. There might not be anything in data, but I've spotted something when I've watched them that, you know, I think you might struggle with this thing. But doubles is also a lot. It's, it's a lot of guessing game. You know, it's, it's, it's a game of chess, really, a lot of the time in big points, especially with sudden death juices and, and tie breaks, because you can go, I've seen players go, you know, you can go right. It's, it's just a guessing game of like the serving player is going to go, I'm going to serve here, my partner's going to go here, and the return at the same time is thinking, I think he's going to go here, and when he does that, I'm going to go there. And it can just be who, who if you guess right or you guess wrong a lot of the time. <laughs> And that's what things can, can revolve around. And, it, and often it's not, you know, sometimes, for sure, sometimes you can think, you can double, you know, you can go, I think he's going to go here. And I, but then you'll come across players who you know are just wild. They don't have any, like, tactical reason as to why they might think something. And if they pick your serve and your move and they've decided to go down the line, then what are you going to do? You know, but if you'd have gone to the other place, you'd have probably aced them. And it's not through any smart thinking or anything it's just a lot of the time it just goes down to look i know this question was way more for calvin but i've sat next to um craig o'shaughnessy at a couple of grand slams who obviously has worked with a few players and i suppose sort of does produce these sort of reports for them that's kind of his bread and butter and i remember seeing him at the um i hope he doesn't mind me saying this but the french open in um (laughs) Whatever year Djokovic lost to Chechenata, which was obviously a famous match um, mm-hmm. at the time in a kind of difficult period for Novak. And I remember 18, seeing I him. Think. 18, mm. I remember seeing him um, on the day of or, or just after that. And he, he, he was pretty upset that Novak <laughs> hadn't followed his tactical advice ah, on serve. Yeah, and sure. He kept going into one position on big point serve. I think it, it will have most likely being out wide on the... Um, he's a lefty, isn't he? So is it, I think he was going out wide on his kind of serving into the yeah. ad side. Um, and, and he was upset. And I was just wondering, have, have you had that where like a player has, you know, you've told them a certain piece of advice and you're thinking, God, why why are they not covering that? Why but it, it, with someone that's really obvious or anything like that? Because it, it, it did feel frustrating for Craig after that. Um, yeah, I've had that, but I've had that, but also I've had things, similar situations like last week where one of the lads, again, I don't want to say which one it was, um, one of the four players who I was coaching on the team, um, it wasn't something I told them to do pre-match, but it was something that transpired in the match that one of the lads' serves is his favourite serve and he likes to hit it. And I got a feeling that one of the returners was now moving that way. And it was, he was kind of like, he knew he was going there. Now in doubles on a fast court, it often doesn't matter because if you hit the spot and you go there, there's not a lot you can do. But I thought he was leaving a huge gap um, in the other way. And I, I was there looking at the screen and it became, I think it got to, it was, it was eight all in the tie break. And I was just thinking, just go go the other way and you'll get an ace because he's, um, he's 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 nowhere near Covering. it. And it it, it didn't um, he didn't do that. He went for his favourite one. I think he actually missed the serve and then had to do a second serve. But 
I would. I was thinking of like I've been watching it, and I guess that's different than you don't pick up on things like that when you're playing so much, maybe because as you're watching it, you're watching it from further away, and you have a more of a, I guess, more of a kind of bird's eye view on it. Um, but I just got a feeling that he was he was kind of starting to pick the serve that that we like to hit in that situation. Now, as we'll talk about in a bit, like on the word on carpet this week, and it's rapid. Now, so the, the serves that you do on that, they, everyone knows what everyone's going to do. Um, there's going to be a lot. There's going to be a lot of it serve it on the juice. There's going to be a lot of regular wide on the ad because it's just that's on on a fast surface. That's it's just difficult to play against. So mm. you know it, it, the chances will be few and far between. So tomorrow, it's almost like like Luke and Skander play tomorrow. There's there's almost not a great deal of point in scouting um, because. <laughs> Like it's just on a rapid surface, and I know at least one of the guys who they're playing has got a very, very good serve. Um, and the match will probably be decided on it'll be decided on on first serve percentages and what you do with the seconds if you get enough looks at second serves on big points. Hmm. Um, I mean, I, I was to do it today. We practiced. We'll come to the service in a minute, but we practiced today. I got here today this morning, and we practiced twice today. And in the first practice, I don't think I'd said a word for four games because there wasn't nothing to say. Like I think I don't think we've got past serve and return, um, and I think we'd held. I think there've been four games, and I think there've been one point against serve. So, <laughs> you know, what can um, you say? What can you say as a coach in that respect? Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, we might as well move on to carpet, Calvin. I think you've answered Sharon's question at length. Um, and if you do want to ask a question like that, then um, drop us an email: tennisunfiltered at gmail dot com. Um, so, Calvin, this is I think I'm right in saying the last remaining carpet tournament. It's on the Challenger Tour. There are none left on the main tour. Um, have you got any fathom, any reason that it still exists? I, I guess it's well attended and it financially does well. How different is it to, um, how does it feel underfoot? And obviously you say it's quick. Um, yeah, it's quick. It's not the quickest carpet I've ever seen, but it is quick. It's way quicker than a hard court. The thing what struck me about this one today, and I've not really seen a, a carpet court like it, um, is one, the colours are strange. It's orange. It's two different mm. shades of orange. Um, and it's almost like a living room carpet in that it's <laughs> it's probably about a centimetre thick. Um, it's not like a on a carpet that you normally middle. get. Yeah, on a carpet that you normally get, it's kind of like the rough, like doormat type carpet that you normally play a tennis court on. This is like uh, the the thing what struck me the most when we started playing is because it's quite thick, is that the ball barely makes a sound when it bounces. It doesn't mm. get like the normal bounce sound, and that has quite an effect on the players when they're when you're sort of returning and that kind of thing. You don't get the sound element of it it's kind of like the best way to describe it, it's kind of like a muffled muffled bass drum when the ball hits the hits the court mm. um which is it's a strange sensation really but yeah it's it's a different you, you know i mean i said that i was just at dinner with luke now and i said you know we've just the thing with what you've got to be on the on a court like this is you've just got to be ready if the opportunities come on on return because there probably won't be many of them. And also, you've got to be ready as the server's partner because you'll probably go long periods of time without touching a ball because the ball won't come back a lot of the time. Um, and I think it's you know it's just less margin to actually win a tennis match, I think, um, 
yeah, you, you know, I think most matches will be determined by the players that have that win the that put the most amount of first serves in the court. I, I suppose the the question is whether you, I suppose as a player and a coach you don't prefer that, right? Because you a bit like you often talk during the grass court season that you're more nervous there than ever because it, there are more opportunities for luck. And I suppose does this maybe create more opportunities for good fortune as well? Yeah, I think so. I don't know if it's good fortune. There's just less opportunities. So, you know, it's... You know, what, clutch, again, yeah, the match will be... I'm pretty sure that every, if, if you put two reasonably paired teams on the court, on a, on a carpet court, especially in doubles, the match will be decided by five or six points either way and what happens in those five or six points. And mm. that, that's just the way that it'll go. And there won't be loads of sudden death juices and that kind of thing. Um, and it'll just be, you know, again, whether it's like, you know, if you get, you can get a 30, 40 and whether the, whether the server hits his spot at 30, 40. And if he doesn't hit his spot, whether you take advantage of it, cause it's still going to come through. It might be missed spot, but it's still going to come through skidding off a court pretty quick. And just mm. those type of things. It won't be, it won't be the kind of match where, where you're building pressure constantly. I don't, I don't think any of the matches this week will be the kind of match where you're building pressure constantly by getting 30-all a lot of the time, a lot of 15-30s, and, and you tend to feel pressure that, and eventually you might, you might break down because of that at, say, 4-5, even if you haven't had a break of serve. I, I, I think on carpet courts, what tends to happen is the breaks tend to happen pretty randomly. Hmm. Well, it'll be interesting to see um, see what you make of it once the tournament play gets underway. Um, and uh, I was just looking for the the last singles champions at what is I think it's still called the Wolfgang Open, which is a bigger uh, construction firm in uh, Germany. Uh, Quentin Alice, Oscar Otter, Mark Andre Husler, Lucas Lacco. There's some big serves in there. <laughs> no, no surprises. Mark Andrea Hustler has played a match today. Me and Luke were just looking at it where he didn't lose a point on serve. And I think he won 32 out of 32 points, and 15 of them were aces. Oh, my God. <laughs> if, if you look at it, I think he won yeah, a match 6-3, 6, three, six one in, four, in 41 minutes, and he didn't yeah, lose six, a point on serve. Yeah, he won 4-1, 43 minutes. Jesus. Uh, a good draw, yeah. I would suggest, with the greatest respect to yeah. uh, Marco Polacek. Yeah. But, um... but I was saying to actually, I was just saying to Luke actually there, you're almost at that stage. You're because again, he's played like a junior exempt, like it was basically a wild card. You're almost a bit mm. pissed off that you've used up a serving day like that in that situation. <laughs> like, I'd rather have saved it for, you know, for, for for the semi or something like that. But I tell mm. you what, as well though, we practiced today on the court next to Dominic Stricker. Well, I don't know why Dominic Strick is not playing in Paris. I think he might have forgot to enter because he would have got in, <laughs> I imagine. Um, What's he... Uh, okay, yeah, carry on. Um, and my word, can he strike a tennis ball? I, it was, it's something to behold. I stood there and watched him um, for, for about five minutes after practice. And, geez, I mean, he's, he's, he, can strike, he can hit a tennis ball. Like, mm. so pure, clean, hard relaxed and on a carpet court it kind of added a bit more to it as well um mm. yeah i mean just you you don't see me you don't come across come across that many who'd strike a ball that clean and that hard um but yeah was really impressed with him 
you, you missed the opportunity for a, a good pun there, Calvin. I think you should have said he can really strick a tennis ball from the yeah, strike. But I'm not a nerd, though, so that's why I didn't say it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's actually shot <laughs> um, I'm not. I'm not sure you're going to recover from that, George. Um, <laughs> I, so I think, Calvin, I think that Dominic Stricker's uh, fourth round U.S. Open points would have kicked in. I think just after the cutoff for Paris. So because oh, really? he's not. Right. On, he's yeah. He's not on the entry list. You're right. Like he's not even on the alts. But I suspect, because he's 90 in the world, so he would have been right on the cusp. But I suspect, yeah, uh, yeah he would have been on the cusp for qualies, at least. In fact, yeah, he would have been I mean, I, I, I get the feeling with Stricker that he's one of those guys who... He's, he's going to get to a crossroads soon where he's, he's going to be a, either a very, very serious tennis player who certainly could be in the top 10 in the world and I think could cause real damage at the back end of the biggest tournaments... Or he's going to be just one of those guys who's just very talented and occasionally beats um, beats some very good players just because he hits the ball so clean and hard. But he doesn't want to necessarily put the extra yards in to get himself there. And I hope it, I really hope it's the former of those because I think he's I mean, a, a real real superstar. I think, as you said in our group chat recently, it's great to see someone like him at the top of sport. You need lads in his shape at the top of sport. And I completely <laughs> agree. Yeah. Like, he's yeah. carrying a few. He's got that sort of Stan Wawrinka body type, right? Yeah, but I don't know if he's got the Stan... Like, the Stan Wawrinka's like... It's almost like an optical illusion because Stan Wawrinka <laughs> looks for the whole world like he's carrying some weight and then takes his top off and it just complete transformation. <laughs> guy's ripped to shreds. Yeah. I do not think Dominic Stricker's like that, but um, <laughs> like, I don't know. Is this a Swiss thing? Does this happen anywhere else? Like, um, <laughs> but but no. I mean, it is like if if you can get that, you can see sports scientists and S and C coaches like terrified that their careers may be over if we get more guys like this coming through. <laughs> well, where, where would Stricker rank on the players you, you'd like to coach, Calvin? If you think he's got like such a high ceiling and maybe not quite fulfilling uh, yeah, it. Yeah, I said before, I have a job with two very good players. But if, if um, <laughs> no, he's, he's, I, I, you know, he's the type of player that I imagine anybody would want to coach. Um, he's, he's very, very good, I think, and also an, an obvious route as to where you would take him to the next level. For any coach mm. that's that's lucky enough to work with him, I think it's you know it's, it really doesn't seem like actual shots are the problem there. Mm. Do you, do you know his current coach? Do you, do you, can we maybe distract him somehow, like wave a little flower at him, and you could, we can okay. hire him for the podcast? Uh, you can add a third player to the roster. <laughs> um, I, I don't uh, know who coaches him at the minute. No, it's a uh, Dieter Kind Kindleman. Uh, according to uh, Wikipedia, which may well be wrong, um, but there you go. Uh, if you've got inside info on Dieter Kindleman and uh, I don't know what his favourite restaurant is, then please do let us know. Um, right, let's move on before I start threatening to not like bump this guy off, which I'm absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> we've had a question from Peanut on Twitter uh, saying, I'm waiting with bated breath uh, on your podcast on Uncle Tony. Uh, perhaps we will have news on Rafa's return. Also, by then, Peanut is a big Rafa Nadal fan. Um, 
well, we haven't got any news on Rafa Nadal's uh, return by now, uh, if unless I've missed something in the last couple of minutes. Uh, what is she talking about when it comes to Uncle Tony? Well, I suspect she's referring to a recent interview with the Mallorca Bulletin, uh, a regular read for anyone with big connections in Mallorca, I'm sure, uh, in which t- Tony Nadal appears to be sort of bemoaning Frankly, the softness of modern players, and I use that term advisedly, it's not my opinion, it's pretty much what he says. Um, I'll read you sort of choices of his quotes. Um, The teams behind players have become so large, so many stats and analysis, nutritionists and mental health coaches. It is the latter, mental health coaches, that I believe are the cause for so many young players getting frustrated and being unable to handle defeat and pressure. Rafa never had a mental coach and never mind a nutritionist. I'm not his mother. I don't know what he ate or eats or how much he weighs. It just used to be Rafa and I. Some days we play with old balls. Some days we go to poor courts to train. And some days we forget to take water so he could be mentally stronger and get used to accepting defeat and making mistakes. George, it was just better in the old days, wasn't it? Uh, this feels like a very uh, different direction of conversation, says Calvin's sort of scouting analysis at the start. It feels like we're now yeah, into Calvin, it. Just, need that. Just take them some rubbish balls and forget the water. Yeah. Forget your scouting reports. <laughs> I, I, I think in all seriousness, this this does touch on, um, and it's not what Tony Nadal's driving up, but it does touch on quite a common conversation in British tennis, actually, that a lot of players are so widely supported and have everything they could possibly need due to being a Grand Slam nation, due to there being so much funding and opportunity, that they are a little bit weak when it comes to the biggest moment. There's almost that safety net behind, whereas there are people on the tennis tour who are so used to this kind of great, as the argument goes, these having to fight for absolutely everything, have no funding, it really being kind of everything or nothing. And, and I guess, you know, Tony's point would be now that the volume of players having that wider support network that they're establishing around them is potentially softening them up a little bit and giving them too much to rely on, too much potentially to blame as well. Um, It's interesting because, I I mean, I I think we're all fairly sympathetic to a lot of kind of mental health issues. And I think tennis is a very kind of mentally isolating sport. And I I wouldn't want to say, you know, yeah, that sort of thing is absolutely nonsense in tennis and your mentality is such a big part of the game. But it is an interesting question how much you need to break down all of these roles or whether there's just something about being in a a nicer environment sometimes with kind of one or two figures of support who really know you and you develop good relationships and go on. I don't know. I I don't have all the answers to that. I, I suspect this is a little bit like kind of Roy Keane versus modern footballers sort of thing. Uh, that, you know, Nadal was a bit of a freak and Uncle Tony's probably, you know, trying to compare other people to someone who was just crazy different. But Yeah, I mean, I would say for starters that Tony Nadal is basing this on a sample size of one. And, <laughs> and as you say, like an absolute freak. Um, the, the other point he makes is about uh, today there's too much information, it's confusing and it's all about positive criticism that does not always work. On the contrary, it leads to greater frustration for players when they lose. It's a case of dusting yourself down and training more, working harder, constantly improving. It's about hitting the ball as hard as you can, as if your life depends on every shot. It's a championship ball, getting the ball in, moving around the court, adjusting the movement of the ball, and don't help the other player beat you. Simple game in Tony Nadal's mind, isn't it, Calvin? Um, I think the, the it's an interesting topic, and I... I kind of agree with Tony Nadal and also, but I don't know if I agree with him in what he's trying to say. My position would come from that 
it's not I don't think necessarily that it was better in the old days or it's better now. But what I do agree with him is I think that in particular things like mental coaches and sports psychologists, the 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 increased use of mental coaches and players talking about this kind of things, it, I don't know if it's actually made any difference at all. I don't think it's I don't think they're softer than they were 20 years ago, but I don't think they're any more mentally prepared or stable either. I, I do think a lot of that is just waffle because I don't think it's actually made any difference. You're probably still getting the same amount of players dropping out of the game now as you did with, with burnout back then. You know, you look at, like, in, the, in recent times, you've had players like Amanda Nisimova and Naomi Osaka and, I guess, to a different degree, um, Ash Barty, who didn't want to play anymore. And back then, you still had situations with Jennifer Capriati and... Um, I'm trying to think who else. M- M- Martina Hingis dropped out early. She wasn't enjoying it. So it's only kind of the same thing. But I do think there's a lot of a lot of mental coaches pinching a living, um, for want of a better word. Or maybe they're not. Maybe they're not pinching a living because that sounds quite disingenuous. But I don't really think that... I, I'd find it difficult to say now. With, and, and without a doubt, I mean, it's probably 500 times the increase in mental health or men, not mental health, but mental coaching for the game. I don't think you could justify that there's been anywhere close to as, as big a difference as that would, would make compared to the amount that's gone into it. And, mm. I, and I think that also I'd say the same about sports science and S and C coaching. There's no less injuries now than what there were 20 years ago. And again, We've got this whole set of sports science now. You see players now. I see players now and they do they do one hour warm-ups before they go on and hit a tennis ball. And and for certain situations, I get it. I mean, Henry UI coach has had he had back issues earlier in the summer and he has he's a big lad. He's just a big unit. So his and I know he gets frustrated that his warm-up is, is about an hour before he goes on court. That's before he's hit a tennis ball. Um, but that's because he's sort of has a particular injury that he's had that he needs to prepare himself for and because of his unique size. But I see players now, I see even like junior players warming up for like an hour before 40 minutes. I mean, I used to do regional squad for York, um, for the Northeast region a couple of years ago. It was a three-hour squad for under 10s. First 40 minutes was physical warm-up. <laughs> under tents, you know, and that that to me was absolutely crazy. And then I actually mm. spoke with Matt Little, who was and is Andy Murray's fitness trainer, and he told me he told me this years ago, and he tells me it regularly now when I see him. If your warm up's taking longer than fifteen minutes, you're not doing something right because you can mm. be warm. In, if you're doing a proper warm up, you can be warm and ready to play in fifteen minutes. And and uh, again, uh, I go on. Sorry, James. Well, there's an argument that you're actually just increasing load there. All you're doing is is increasing yeah. physical load without increasing any tennis. Well, I see. I mean, you know, we've all seen it now. You see it everywhere. I've seen 20 players doing it today, the band work, when they get their bands out. And for anyone on YouTube, you know, when we're doing this type of thing, <coughs> you know, and this and this. And, if, and I know a, a, a doctor who, well, he's an S&C trainer, he's an S&C coach, but he will say these things. He will say, like, this guy who used to do, I've, I've known him through work. He's an, he was an excellent S&C coach uh, for some of my players years ago, but he ended up doing a PhD, and he's a very smart lad. And he says, like, you know, and I'll say to him, who are the best S&C coaches around? A, a top, top 30 player in the world asked me a couple of years ago, saying, who's the best S&C coach in Britain? Um, I need an S&C coach. And I went and asked him. 
And he said, there's, there's no best or worst. They're either good or they're not. And, you know, they all, S&C coaches, they always come with the same. There's only so many exercises you can do. He's like, they either know them or they don't. And he's, you know, the guy's a smart guy. And he was like, they either know them or they don't. Like, that's, that's, the, that's the thing. And he was like, so people going, oh, this guy's the best. This guy's the best around. He's like, there's not. They're either, they're either shit or they're, they're not. Like, so, um, and, you know, and I, I found that interesting. You know, that's for all that we go into sports science. And it's true, isn't it? You know, it's true. There's, there's still all you're going to do is you're going to do squats. You're going to do some lifts. You know, and some some S and C coaches are going to agree that that's a good lift. Some are not. But if you do them, he said at the time, if you do your if you do your lifts and you do them with good form, then that's an it's a good S and C coach. But I I, I, I think there's I, I, probably I think there's probably a kind of the graph kind of looks like this where you've got this quite big fat middle of ability where the the from twenty percent to eighty percent maybe or ninety percent probably largely the same and you're probably going to pay less or more for those people i do still think there probably are people out there doing things that are not necessarily what everyone else is doing people who've got maybe their own ideologies or who are kind of at the very forefront of like where this stuff gets moved forward and i think they're and I think worth it's, having yeah I, I i think more what he was trying to say though james was that, that again like you say they have their most ssc coaches the good one you know the qualified ones they have their theories on how, what the best way to make someone fit is. And then other people will disagree with those theories on what, if that's the best way, if that's a good, if that's a good exercise or not. And then it just happens. There's not, there's no right or wrong because there's, there's scientific grounding on both sides. Mm. Like it's like, that's what science is. You're arguing against one side against the other. And it's not everything is, is like, you know, as, as we blooming saw a couple of years ago with COVID, it's not like science ever entirely agrees on everything um but and i think that's the same in that regard but i think coming back to the initial point though it's again they do have these huge teams of players uh, huge, players do have these huge teams of people around them and i don't necessarily i'm not going to go around the route of saying that's what makes them soft these days or that kind of thing so i don't think they're any softer than what they were 20 years ago but they just seem to be spending a whole lot more money on having more people around mm. and, and and spending a whole lot more time on on, on things like mental coaches and sports scientists and nutritionists and that kind of thing. And I, I mean, I'll count the Tony Nadal's thing by saying, you know, if Tony Nadal was entirely right in this, he might have had another player other than his own nephew. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's, he's hardly pulled up trees with Felix or Ger Aliassime, has he? I know he won a title mm. yesterday, but I don't think Tony was there with it. But it's not <laughs> like he's come with this, like, right, this system works. Look, people are different. And you can't, you're not, I'm not, I'm not having that I did this with Rafa, so this is the way to do it. Are we, are we saying that Rafa Nadal isn't a completely unique individual? That, you know, when we talk about nature and nurture, like there probably was a bit of nurture there, but I've struggled to believe that a lot of that with Rafa Nadal, it just isn't nature. Like, yeah, and, I, I, and he was brought up into a, a a successful sporting family already. Hmm. They kind of knew what to do. Yes, exactly. I also find it funny that this is Tony Nadal who like runs a tennis academy, like who presumably have like S and C coaches and probably some sort of yeah. sports psychologist and like charge people a well, lot of money to use them. You're not allowed chocolate in that place. I've been there. <laughs> you can't buy chocolate in the place. The nearest place you can buy chocolate or a Coke, you can't even get a Coke from there. Like the nearest place you can get a Coke 
it's a 20 minute walk away. And I know because I did it twice a day and I was there. <laughs> so, so that's actually a very good point. Well, the angriest I've ever seen Calvin. <laughs> yeah, but that's actually a good point, isn't it? When we were, you know, when he's talking about nutritionists and that kind of thing. But again, yeah, I, I, I think it's different. Like people are just different, and you're going to have those. Look, Andre Agassi wrote a book about, and it's basically ninety percent about his mental struggles mm. and that kind of thing. So. Yeah, it's always happened. Yeah, it's not new. Anyway, um, I, I knew that would be a, an interesting uh, topic of conversation. I didn't expect Calvin to go on a rant about inability to buy sugar, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's not a problem you'll be having in Germany, I'm sure. The home of Coca-Cola Germany, I think, these days, in Europe. It's the main like distribution hub. Don't ask me how I know that. I'm a boring man. Um, let's move on. Uh, you mentioned Felix Auger-Aliassime winning a title uh, he won the Swiss Indoors in Basel, beating Hubert Hercatch in the final, which might be the most like European indoor final ever. Like, I feel like those two guys have basically only ever won titles indoors in October uh, in uh, in Europe somewhere. But um, yeah, which I, I don't feel that I've learned a huge amount more about either of them. Uh, Yannick Sinner also won a title in a much stronger field, beating Medvedev. In the final of Vienna, I particularly enjoyed Daniil Medvedev spraying champagne all over Yannick Sinner after that, which uh, just just made me laugh, really. I thought that was quite good. Um, we've talked a lot about Yannick Sinner over the last couple of uh, weeks, so I don't think we need to dwell on that too much. Uh, we'll maybe know more about it when we're a bit deeper into Paris, um, which is kind of what I want to talk about next, because you've mentioned Andy Murray. We were all watching him or following him in various different ways today against... The first round draw from hell for Andy Murray. He is now 6-0 and against Alex Dumanur, but he was not without his opportunities. Uh, he came back from losing the first set tiebreak to lead 5-2 in the second set. He had a match in the third set, I should say. He had a match point on his own serve at 5-4, uh, but he did also serve for the match at 5-2. Uh, but he lost the last five games smashed a racket, walked to the net, shook hands with Alex Dumanur, and then smashed the racket some more. Um, Calvin, you can take some credit for this one, I think, although I, I, you gave him a 50-50 chance of winning at 5-2 up in the third, and I think that was probably a bit generous to Murray. Yeah, I mean, I was kind of, I was, as I said in the text group, I was, I was half joking, but I also wasn't, mm-hmm. um, because I saw him do it the other week. I think it was one break the other week. I think it was 5-2 it was mm. one break, but he also had match points in the 5-2 game. Mm. Um, it's twice in three weeks, being 5-2 up in the third against Dimonor and hasn't closed it out. I didn't see today, so I don't... I, was, um, I wasn't I was watching. I was just following the score. Yeah, so I, I watched pretty know. much every point of the third set, and I, all the things I think you're going to say normally happen, they happened. <laughs> yeah. Um, I found his comments after, as we just discussed an hour ago when we were talking just before we came on air, I found those really interesting and honest and I was quite impressed that he actually came out and said those things. He was he was very open, as he always tends to be. There was no stand, bog-standard tennis player, I'm just going to go back, focus on the process, try and get better and that kind of thing. Wasn't yeah. happy-go-lucky by any stretch, but... 
he was quite, you know, cards on the table, wasn't it? Of this is yeah. I'll I'll, I'll give you the I'm, kind of the flavor, of the best stuff. I mean, yeah, for people who don't know or haven't experienced Andy Murray, like he, I stand by the idea that he's one of the best talkers in sport. I think just because he's got this kind of slightly monotone, sometimes slightly miserable sounding accent, people kind of write off what he says. But he is an interesting talker. And especially these days, as he's got a bit older, um, he says, I'm not really enjoying it just now in terms of how I feel on the court and how I'm playing. The past five and six months haven't been that enjoyable, which doesn't help things. So I need to try and get some of that enjoyment back because playing a match like that, there's not really much positivity there. Uh, when I play a good point, I'm not really getting behind myself. And then the important moments that I will to win and fight that has always been quite a big, big part of my game is it, not there. Um, I'm 36 now and have the team around me that I've chosen. The results are ultimately my performance, but also if I want to keep going, I'm going to need a lot of work. It's not like the off season or whatever. It's not just going to be like one or two weeks of training to get me where I need to be. It's going to have to be a lot of work and consistent work to give myself a chance of getting back to where I want to be. Um, it's not a, he, it's not a great place to be on the court. Uh, I mean, George, this is quite unusual. If we think about this, the final portion of Murray's career, um, he's often lost and come in and said, look, I, I feel really good in practice. It's just some things aren't quite going right. Some things are going wrong and I still think I can get there. This is the, surely the most down we've heard him. It's, it's definitely up there. I mean, I've, I've heard him be a bit more kind of outright. Um, I might not be back next year sort of thing. And a bit kind of downcast. Well, when he lost degree. it, is there at Wimbledon, maybe? Yeah, it's sort of the kind of grass season that tends to, to kind of happen. But, but, th- but this felt a bit different because even in those moments, it's felt like he's felt things have been going well in the build-up, whereas this is like an elongated period. And it's a period we've commented on during this period where we've, We've said similar things to what he's saying now. Like, it's it's hard to see him getting things right or moving in the right direction or trying the right things. But the way he kind of then pulls it back to practice and is saying, God, I'm not enjoying any day of that. I'm really struggling to even do it there. I don't know, it just feels really concerning. I mean, he does still sort of say there's still where I want to be and no, I can be. So I guess there is a degree of positivity from his perspective of, okay, this isn't going right now, but I know I can go somewhere else. But it's just quite sad, isn't it? I think watching Murray now, I think, you know, I've sort of said earlier that, you know, Dimonor would be a great quiz question in 10 years time to be like, who's the only player who's played Murray more than five times and beaten him every time, which, you know, may not be a question. The right answer I'm assuming is I can't think of anyone else. No, I'd be staggered if there's anyone else. Possibly could be. But it, but but this is just a player that Murray would have put away six six times to love, I imagine, um, ten years ago. And I I, I feel like he, he, he well, I don't feel like I mean he, he should have won these matches. He should be winning them. He's getting there, and he's doing the same thing wrong every time in those big moments. Nothing's really changing. He's getting quite. Um, he's always been relatively emotive on court, but it does feel there's a lot more angry smashing outbursts than there perhaps were in the past. He normally might chunter heavily at his box, but, you know, he's going full on <laughs> tidal wave 
racket smashing at the moment. Um, mm. I don't know. He just he's just not in a happy place, is he? Pointing the bleedingly obvious out. <laughs> <laughs> Never like you, George, to miss an obvious point to score. Um, yeah, I think he isn't in a right. And you're right. It's not just him chuntering at his box, which was we really used to Murray just like shouting abuse at his coach during matches, and lots of players do it. Um, and this was different. This was like swiping at the court. Almost every time he missed a ball, he, he did miss a lot of balls as well. I think there were 20 unforced errors on the forehand side over the match um, and only 11 winners, I think. And, and Calvin, what you won't have seen is what you've always seen this year and the last two years maybe is that when the short forehand was there, it, it was hit with a lot of cover and not a lot of incision, um, which is just, just the problem. And, and I guess as we were discussing, when you're playing a guy like Alex de Manor, who doesn't miss, who's very fit, um, you're going to struggle. And I guess probably also early in the week when the courts are a bit slower, um, conditions are not necessarily how you'd want to play Alex de Manor. Uh, you'd like to be able to put him away then. Yeah. What do you... It's inevitable we're going to talk about this and he kind of preempted it, you know, where he was like, if I'm going to carry on. I, does this feel like now that Wimbledon next year might be the right time to stop, Calvin, do you think? Um, I don't think he's decided. I don't think he'll stop at Wimbledon and play the Olympics, I would think, anyway. Mm. Um, or I think that's what he intended to do. I didn't get the feeling, as, as downbeat as those quotes were, though, I didn't get the feeling that he was thinking about stopping there. Mm. I think it was more that I got more of the feeling that he's definitely continuing. He's just disheartened and disillusioned as to why he's not getting better and doesn't know how he's going to get better. That, but he knows it's going to require a lot of work as mm. he said, but I didn't, those quotes didn't strike me as him going, you know, I'm, I'm in the end game now. Mm. Um, do, do you think, do you think there's any chance we'll see that, what we've always talked about, that kind of hit, you know, hit swing for the fences, hell for leather, uber aggressive game plan, just as a last throw of the dice? I, I know this much that if you want to get better at tennis from where you are in a posi the position that you're currently at, there's two ways of doing it. You can either make, without sounding all British Cycling and Dave Brailsford, you can go the marginal gains route and you can make things, make, try and make things a little bit better and, and just try and make incremental improvements. Or you can change. And some and and thing and you come in and you go something has to change here, like whether that or, or everything has to change here. Um, you know my mindset has to change. I'm changing my shots. I'm going to do something different. I don't think he has to change his shots, his shot mechanics. I don't think are, uh, uh, you know, uh, terrible or anything like that. There, there's there's always improvements, but I don't think he's going to get where he wants. I think that's half the problem, though. And again, I speak purely of, out of ignorance on this. I haven't spoke to him. I haven't really discussed it, him with any of his camp, all of who I know and who are, who are solid people. Um, I get the feeling, and it's purely the feeling I get cause, and from Andy with the, the way that... I know he doesn't... He said before he doesn't prescribe to the marginal gains thing, so maybe I've used the wrong word there, but I think he, he tends to think I'm going to get a little bit better every day. And that's how I'm going to start get back on the get back on the road to to winning big tennis matches. I I personally don't. I think he needs to go right. Everything on the table. 
and this is going, this is going, this is going, this is going, and this is how it's going to be now. Whether that be, and that doesn't have to be changing tactics or anything. It could be, right, I'm changing the way that I practice. I'm changing where I practice. I'm changing who's on court with me. I'm changing my setup. I'm investing in something completely different. I've got, I've got somewhere between eight and 18 months to two years left. And this 18 months to two years is not going to be the same as the previous 17 years of my career. It's going to be different. Everything's going to be different. I think if he does that, then he's got a chance. I'm, I don't know whether it will. There's a, I think there's a degree to which there's definitely a possibility of something like that happening in terms of a coaching team. I mean, it, but I, I thought it was interesting him kind of just particularly highlight the serve as the shot he's feeling is is letting him down in some ways. Like he said, like a lot of players these days are getting way more free points than I am. I'm not really starting things off that well. I know we focus quite a lot on kind of that willingness to kind of let loose in big moments. But do, do you, I don't know, his serve, we spoke about it in the past, is like, it has been quite weak over the years, the second serve, which maybe we have counterbalanced as possibly a strength. But this seems more on the first serve and maybe percentages of getting it in and in good spots. And it's an area where I think Novak has developed his game so well as he's got older. And it, Murray just, to me, hasn't made that, sort of advancements to is that a fair kind of reflection he's got i mean he's got a big serve he's got a big first serve i don't know if i'd say that he's got a particularly accurate first serve so that's something i think that is a bit of an issue for him i also think that the way he goes about it i mean i don't think he's weirdly i don't think he's anywhere near as good a volleyer as he used to be but if he can get i don't see any reason why he shouldn't make his volleying better again but I think that is one of the ways he can improve. I think he's got to commit to serve volleying a lot more. You know, mm. serve volleying thirty percent of the time, thirty four percent of the time, and going, "This is what I'm doing," and I'm I'm committing to this. Um, I, I read a lot yesterday. People know that I'm a Man United fan, and I read a lot yesterday about how Pep Guardiola, when he came into Man City, was fully committed. I mean, I'll mention that Man City also did a lot of cheating as well, but um, that's by the by. But um, he was fully committed to this is how he wanted to be. And even for the first year when it wasn't working, like, no, this is how it's going to be. And apparently he said to John Stones, his defender, you play out from the back. You never, no matter how much stick you get, you do this. You do this and it will come together. Whereas opposed to Man United and Eric Ten Hag, who was Man United manager, the feeling is that it didn't work for two games and basically threw everything out and did what was needed to try and get short-term results. Now, I think Murray has to, I think he has to commit to going, I'm just going to be, I'm just going to be way more aggressive for the next two years. I'm going to lose some matches because I'm going to miss a lot of balls and I'm going to accept that, especially maybe from now until, I don't know, maybe from now until Indian Wells, Miami, I'm going to have to get myself used to that. It might go great. There might be some matches where it doesn't go in, but I'm not coming out. I, I don't want to see Andy come out, and I really want Andy to get his, his his shit together and get back to winning some tennis matches because he's still one of the players who, when he's on, I'll always tune in. I don't want to see him in the Australian Open doing exactly the same hmm. with, like, you know, Ivan Lendl doing nothing on the sideline and, you know, like, just going through the same old shit of he's playing well and then when it gets towards the end, he thinks in his wisdom that, the opponents will just start missing tennis balls and that kind of thing. And 
Um, you look at the big wins he's had in the last year. You know, there was the Australian Open run was great, but he can get away with that kind of stuff against Kokonakis and Berrettini. Because in order to win, Kokonakis and Berrettini, in order to beat him, they're going to have to hit winners past him. And in order to, get, in order to hit winners past him, you're going to have to go take some risks. And Andy's always been good at putting the ball in positions where people will get tempted to hit shots where they're more likely to miss than they're not. His problem's been when he plays people like Alex Dimonor, who are not going to mm. miss. And, you know, that. I mean, he should have beaten Sitsi Pass twice in the last couple mm. of years. He should have beaten him at the US Open. He definitely should have beaten him at Wimbledon. I thought for. I thought. I always said at Wimbledon he would have beat him if they'd have stayed on court that night. The last couple of weeks have made me wonder whether he would or would he just have reverted to going doing what he did when it got is, towards the end. Is this a, an attractive coaching job for someone now? I mean, what you're saying sounds kind of great if he'll actually commit and do it, but is he actually going to get rid of Lendl now? Is he actually going to kind of step away from that side of thing? Is he actually going to go and be really radical and change it? Or, or are you looking at this as a coach and thinking, this is someone who's actually not not willing to move I, away I don't from wanna, what I knows. don't want to go down that. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying he should go and change his coaches by any stretch. I've got friends in his coaching camp. Hiltz is a good friend of mine and he's an excellent coach. He's one of the very best coaches around. Um, he's travelling with Johnny O'Mara, who's a friend of mine as well now. I'm not going to come on, on here and say that Andy Murray should be looking at sacking his coaches. I will say that I'm not really sure what Ivan Lendl adds at this point. Um, <laughs> although you could add, you could take away at this point from that sentence and it would still be correct. <laughs> um, he was there so, last time. I think that's his main appeal. He's a yeah, sort of security yeah. blanket. Yeah. Um, you know, but he must, he must add something. I'm speaking, you know, Andy Murray must think he had something, but mm. um, I think it's, it's it's tough to to change the way that you've done something. I mean, you know, look at you guys. You've been you both. George's not anymore. You're you're you know you're still a writer, James. George has been a writer. It's almost like if I were to tell you now, right, you're going to chuck everything out what you've done that's got you to the place where you're at in your career, and you're going to go and do it an entirely different way. It'd be a struggle, wouldn't it? You know, it'd be yeah, a struggle if, to actually do that. But if I was faced with this prospect of, you know, I, I had, I had everything I'd done for the last six months had been thrown back in my face, and I knew that realistically I couldn't work beyond another year or two, I think that yeah. would probably, surely, that's the the thing is with Andy Murray, I, you know, none of us can pretend to know him that well, but we all know he's bloody stubborn. And that is why yeah. he's got as far as he has. And, you know, you, you cannot be... I saw a tweet today about how Serena Williams, when she got aced by Federer at the Hopman Cup, she was she turned to her whoever she was playing with and said, uh, we've got this, like, he's only got 20, I've got 23. And it was like, that's the level of delusion you need to be <laughs> an all-time great. Like, you know, people can say, well, she... Look, Serena Williams wouldn't have beaten Roger Federer in tennis matches. Be clear about that. Um, and that's the thing, is that that level of delusion is what you need, and it's also what can eventually be your downfall. Um, you, you have to be inflexible, and then when the requirement is to be flexible, it gets a lot harder. Um, 
Yeah, I yeah, think we should. I, I th- I sorry, think, I think that's what. Sorry, James, I'll, I'll just close on it. I, I think that is his main. That's going to be the main thing with him. He's, you know, he's a very unique individual. He's a very successful individual, and it's whether he can let go of the reins, I suppose, on his own game if he wants to do that and trust somebody, whoever that may be, whether that may be. So that could be somebody in his camp already that goes, we're doing this now. Mm. This is how it's going to be now. And whether he's going to go, okay, you know, I trust you to lead me there. Or whether he's going to go, I I know more about this whole thing than you do. And he's got a legitimate case to say that. And we're going to keep doing how we've been doing it. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing in the matches. And I'll hope it gets a little bit better. Hmm. Hmm. Um, let's move on because there's still loads on my running order and we're, we're already running pretty long, but um, we've got to talk about WTA um, because they're out in Mexico at the moment for the WTA finals. Um, I know Barbara Kajikva has landed there, probably unsure what time it is or what country she's in because she's come straight from the WTA Elite Trophy in Zuhai. Um, I think she's maybe one of the only, there's not a lot, none of the singles women are doing that. I think there's a couple of doubles players anyway um there's been they're pretty unhappy about it needless to say um the stadium was only finished on friday it doesn't look very impressive there aren't very many seats in it um, it's pretty bloody windy and it's quite open uh, and arena sabalenka the world number one uh, says that she was well she thrashed maria sakari who goodness knows how she's qualified but she has <laughs> consistent semi-finals at the thousands events but going out in the first round of three out of four slams. Anyway, that's beside the point. It's mostly because Carolina Mukova is uh, not fit. Um, Savalenka said, after thrashing Sakari, I'm happy I was able to stay focused and I overcome the conditions to play well. I have to say that I'm very disappointed with the WTA and the experience so far at WTA Finals. As a player, I feel really disrespected. I think most of us do. This is not the level of organisation we expect for the finals. I don't feel safe moving on this court a lot of the time. The bounce is not, the bounce is not consistent at all. And we weren't able to practice on this court until yesterday for the first time. It's just not acceptable to me with so much on the line, so much at stake. Um, George, how do those quotes ring in your ears? I think if this were in isolation, I might have a bit more sympathy with the WTA. But I, I think it's very hard to really defend them as an organisation at the minute. Um, you know... I, <laughs> they've backed themselves into a corner with this event because they signed a very long lucrative deal with a country that they shouldn't have signed a very long lucrative deal with, to be honest. Um, That was problem number one. Very quick kind of cash chasing, as we kind of discussed in... Uh, well, I've, I wrote that country that is China, article. right? China. Just to be yeah. clear. Yeah, yeah. Not like North Korea or no, 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 know, no. South Sudan. No, but they've, you know, they've, they've locked themselves into this big financial deal that was a lot of money but it was quite a short-termist thing if you were looking at you know there was already a lot of events in china there was already not that much good tv viewership for them it was a a short-termism sort of deal in my opinion they've since chased a lot of short-termism deals so the reason this one was so late i understand is that there was a big chase for saudi arabian cash that they were hoping to get through and that deal didn't quite happen so they've then ended up with a sort of last-minute bridesmaid stepping up to be the bride, you know. And I, I have some sympathy. <laughs> Sorry, is that is that is that a simile that has ever been like that? That's not what happens, George. Like if the bride doesn't yeah, turn up, doesn't it's not turn, like you get one of the next, bridesmaids, right? Next cab off the rank. That's how jilting love. works. Cheers. <laughs> 
Yeah, that would be an interesting uh, phenomenon <laughs> for those being jilted. Um, but yeah, I, I... it's not lucky loser, George. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. does, does everyone else not turn up to their wedding with a list of alternates? Is that like a you know person's out injured? Oh, you no. get... What's the what's the cutoff for signing in on the morning of the wedding? <laughs> yeah, got a wedding tomorrow. I've got to buy. You'd have that Argentine lad who'd gone to another wedding in Paris and to drive all the way across Europe to sign in to be my wife, something. Um, Congeletti, that was it, wasn't it? Sorry, that was a a very odd sentence. I apologise for uh, people. Anyway, it's an utter mess, and they've ended up in this rubbish stadium. It's it's too often than that. And again, I do think there's a degree of sympathy that. As an organisation, they've been hit hard by this pandemic more than a lot of other sporting organisations. And the global nature of the game has added a lot of challenges. But there's been too many complete and utter shit shows in what's meant to be one of their biggest events. And, you know, we we spoke, you know, one of them went to um, Texas, wasn't it? And they Mm, were struggling to get people there. You know, I, I just find it really hard to make solid excuses for them anymore and I think the players have got to that point and you know several anchors she said it just feels they have a lack of respect for the players at the minute and I'm not saying they're doing things intentionally to be like yeah we don't really give a shit about these players we're going to screw this up for them because you know they don't deserve us to put in full efforts but it's got to the stage where the, I think the leadership has to be seriously questioned and you know if I was a leader in that position I'd probably be considering am I the right person to keep doing this because it is it, just in a poor place at the minute and it's not justifying potentially what could be a, mu- a much stronger product and then mm. I think that's a big shame Calvin on a sort of granular level do you think these complaints are, are valid I mean conditions don't sound great I mean I do have no idea why that why you would put at such short notice agree to have a world tour finals at a place that doesn't yet exist that's <laughs> for, for one thing that I find bizarre but some of the stuff I don't have a great deal of sympathy for because I think it's kind of a bit of waffle that she was complaining last week, Sabalenka, and I like Sabalenka, but she was complaining last week that there's only two practice courts, which is what you'd get if the finals were in any of the indoor places around Europe or anywhere. You'd mm. only get two practice courts. I know that it's the finals and they're the top players in the world, but the stuff, of, and it's a bit different the reason why, but the stuff about not being able to practice on the match court, that's basically the case for any seeded player at most tournaments, that you won't get a hit on a match court before you start, which isn't necessarily Sabarenka's fault, but that's, you know, it creates a divide in, in a separation between levels of players. And that also shouldn't happen. I'm not saying that, that, that it's fine. It shouldn't happen at the lower level, but that's, you know, that maybe highlights to her how frustrating it is that she's going to go on a match court when she hasn't played on it. Whereas in reality, about two thirds of the players in every tournament don't get to play on a match court or don't get to, you know, they might get half hour on the day that they play um, to warm up on it. But that's the case. Um, So don't have a great deal of sympathy there. There's other stuff that I get the feeling, and this is me speculating. I get the feeling that they didn't want it to be in Mexico. So, they're kicking off about it. They want it to be somewhere else. If this was the case, if, as inevitably probably is going to happen in the next five years, it goes to Saudi Arabia and this exact same thing happened, do you think Sabalenka's saying the same things? 
because I think she'll probably be paid a certain amount of money to just not say anything, as what what's yeah. tended to happen. Still, isn't it? That, I mean, you yeah, know, like... spe- he's speculating. You don't know, but hmm. I think also, yeah, you're asking someone to say something in a situation they're not in. But I, I take your point. I, I think it's reasonable. Like Cancun's a pretty inconvenient location when you consider the WTA Elite Trophy, whatever the hell that is. Um, was in Zhuhai, literally finished yesterday. And when you consider the Billie Jean King Cup, King Cup finals are in uh, Seville, Seville, isn't it? They're in Spain, anyway. I'm certain of that. Um, the week after, like, that's a horrendous... Tri- I think, don't know if anyone's doing it. I can't remember if Chechia have qualified for the finals, so whether Krajikov is going to do it. But I think someone might be doing it. But even two out of three, in this case, Meatloaf is wrong. That is bad. Um, and I just, I just think, oh, it's just typical WGA for me, Calvin. I mean, what else? I'll, I'll, I don't know if it's defence of WTA or not, but there's basically for these big tournaments for the WTA, there's three places that would like to hold them. There's China, there's Saudi Arabia, stroke other places in the Middle East with questionable human rights records, and there's Mexico. And if mm. we're going to try and make sure that these big events or that we're going to try and build a thing in Mexico for WTA, where we know that it has a lot of support, women's tennis in Mexico, I'm willing to take these teething problems if it means we keep it out of the grasps of China or Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And I think the players should also do that. But I'll be honest, the players don't want to do that. They want to be in Saudi Arabia as soon as they possibly can. And I suspect that Sabalenka, I, again, I'm speculating, but I'm speculating with, with decent Advisedly, info. Yeah. yeah, that Sabalenka, amongst other players, are wanting to get this thing in Saudi Arabia as soon as possible, which I just find, I find it a bit depressing for a load of female tennis players to be doing that. I was, I was reading an interview with uh, Ons Jabour from Reem Abelai earlier um, from the National, and <clears throat> it was interesting seeing, hearing Jabour talking about how she's been getting really involved in the PTPA side of things and how she's been taking on a lot of kind of Novak's um, views on a lot of these matters and is wanting to get really involved to kind of put her at the front of the organization and be a big kind of representative voice going forwards and yeah i mean it's hard not to see that that they collectively are in a position where they think regardless how we do it we want huge amounts of money as other sports are getting and for the wc as you say calvin they're they're really coming from a couple of quite bad sources at the minute um and it's hard to resolve this problem there and i do think you know we've spoken about this before and the financial implications of equal pay elsewhere all round. But if that was in an ideal world where that was happening and you did have that kind of equal play everywhere else, I think you'd have fewer problems than the WTA currently have at the minute where they really need this flagship event to be some ludicrous amount of money because the rest of the year round, they are playing catch-up and they are under pressure to kind of have this parity as some, you know, we we all would like to see an ideal world. I'm not saying it's that's purely the WCA's fault. I think it's just a reality of the situation that this event has to provide ludicrous amounts of money because it's it's, it's making up a shortfall compared to the ATP. Yeah, um, I, I, w- I was 
I was talking with a few players over the last couple of days about kind of about this, not strictly WTA, but including WTA and some other things about the politics behind tennis at the minute and some of the the moves that we're aware that they are trying to make and some of the other moves that are that the, the governing bodies, but also some of the higher ranked singles players are trying to make, which is, and I don't mind saying this, it's specifically aimed at making sure that the the money from lower down the game basically gets cut out and it goes to them instead. Um, and, and and there's a feeling that those things are going to press forward soon. And like, for example, one of the things is that the ATP are going to lose a load of 250s. The plan is to what, to have no 250s in 2025, as I understand it. So there'll be less tournaments. So that's less tournaments for people to play. If you're lower ranked, you're probably not going to be able to play main tour events. You're going to have to go back down and play challenges, which means there won't be as much money which means the challenges will get fuller and the players who are ranked a little bit lower will have to drop down and play futures and that kind of thing. So, and I was saying that it concerns me on a few things. One of the things that's been mooted is having doubles only from Thursday to Sunday. Um, the, and what concerned me about that, and I'm, I'm, it may sound like a very niche thing, but I'm going to come to it in a minute, is um, the players were quite happy about that. The players would go, a lot of the players going, oh, I think that's a great idea. And it was only when I personally, me, but and then a couple of the other players mentioned to the players, but at the minute, if you're a doubles player, you get your hotel. Every player gets their hotel. The singles players get their hotel from the Saturday before a tournament until the day that they're out. Okay. Um, the doubles players gets their hotel from the Sunday before a tournament until the day that they're out. Uh, Sunday before the tournament starts until the day that they're out. Um, you get the night that you lose. And I said that if it's only going to be Thursday to Sunday, I know what's coming there. They're not going to pay for your hotel for the days in between. So if you're a doubles player, you, you end up, even if you end up making the final on a Sunday and you're on the road, you don't get your hotel paid for until the next Wednesday. You've got to fly you home. You have to pay for your hotels. You're going to have to go yeah, and fly. You're going to have to do one or the other. You're going to have to go home or you're going to have to pay for your hotels. And the players, what astounded me, was that they hadn't even thought about it. Hmm. And one of those players was on the council that was discussing <laughs> it. And I was absolutely staggered. And I said to, I don't mind, I said to Henry and Luke, I was like, people need to, you, people need to start getting ready and they need to get serious people in there. They either need a proper union of sorts or they need intelligent players who are going to make a difference who were going to and, and then they were like you know it's tough to make a difference i said it's tough to make a difference anywhere but if you have the right people and if you badger people you'll get what you want the best we can kind of hope for is that you get the status quo you, you stay where you are because i know they're going to try and take that's not just for doubles that's kind of singles because i know the top singles players are going to try and get money taken out of the bottom and added to the top that's mm. their aim and that really concerns me for the sport as a whole and again, I'm, I'm nearly finished this mini rant that I'm going on here. But and I said to I, I said to those guys, and then one of the players who I'm not naming names again and that kind of thing, but one of the players who I do think would be excellent in a role said, "Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna get on the council." Um, he's an an extremely intelligent player, um, and I think speaks excellently, and is and can be forceful when when needed. And he said, "I'm gonna go and." I'm going to go on the council. So, and I was like, I said to him, yeah, definitely go for it. Um, 
And so he sent me a couple of texts and he messaged a couple of the players who he knows, who he's close with, and he sent me the replies. And one of them said, yeah, but so-and-so's already got that role and, and he, he talks well and I've heard he's been doing some good things. And that player was the player who didn't, hadn't thought about <laughs> that you might not get your hotel paid for. And I thought, what are these good things then? And this is what, it concerns me that tennis players of, that are below the very top players are going to sleepwalk into their careers being basically becoming more of a struggle than they are. Yeah. Because they're not going to weaponize and they're not going to militize themselves to go and, and make a challenge. And I think that that's one of the things, and that includes everything from where the tournaments are going to be held to everything. Hmm. It's concerning stuff. I mean, I've always said that it's the problem. It's a sort of intrinsically um, meritocratic system, and and that has kind of right-wing connotations um, and kind of free market and capitalism all wrapped up in it. And therefore, it's really counterintuitive to individual professional sports people to then form an individual union because they're like, no, if I want something, I'll take it for myself. There's There's not this real idea of collectivism Whereas in a team sport, it's a bit more obvious, like it's a type of mindset you can kind of get behind. It's why I think the PTPA is having, well, I, I don't know. I don't know why the PTPA is having such problems, mostly because the tour won't recognize them. But the, 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 it baffles me. And again, mini rant incoming. I, I, it, I don't know, though, James, whether it is because the tour won't recognize them. Who have they got that you would say, okay, now we're serious because this person can, this person is a... a a solid negotiator. He knows the game. He's, he's, well, his interests are selfless. At the minute, Djokovic and Vasek Pospisil. <laughs> well, no, they've got a they've got a pretty large committee. You know, Ons Jabour, as George mentioned, is part of it, and there's a, I think they've got a decent group of people there. But what I don't understand is why they are not out there talking, like just talking about every single issue. Like they've released a few videos of, of various players sort of sat behind round boardroom tables and, you know, talking about big issues, but in quite vague terms. I don't understand why when there's a problem like this, this Sabalenka thing, like that is Union 101. It's like, right, players are complaining about conditions. We go straight in there and we come out with a big statement and we say, this is unfair. Players are being treated wrong. We think they should be given the chance to tell the tour, blah, 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 and and make the point to the whole playing and whole public tennis world that these unions can do well. Um, my thing, sorry, my, yeah, my I, dog is staring at me like I'm completely insane. I, I am talking sense. Yeah. I get that. I, I totally agree with you, James. The problem with this is you've got a union, basically what the PTPA is. I know people are going to tell me it's not a union, but that's what it's supposed to be it is for all intents and purposes. You've got a union. What kind of union is basically just campaigning to try and get more money for its CEOs and sod the rest of them? And that's what, well, the, exactly. that's what the PTPA is trying to do. That's what mm. whether they, they've, they've basically admitted it in the past, but a union is supposed to look after everybody equally. That's mm. what it's supposed to look after the work for. What the union should be doing is when this talk of, for example, I'll use this purely as an example, when this talk of doubles tournaments going down to four days starts, they should have someone going in there going, right, if you're planning on doing this, you better be paying for our hotels for the, for the same period as you're paying at the minute. Mm. And, or, or that's not going to happen. Yeah. And instead, yeah. they're not. They're talking about getting 30% off flights. 
Yes, which, which is just, just uh, who knows uh, how they're going to so do that. So wishy-washy. And waffle, and, and waffle, they should be jumping on these things straight away. And, and they're yeah. not. And saying this is not going to happen. Yeah, I agree. Um, let's move on, because uh, we could talk about that genuinely all day, I think. Um, I've written down that Andy Murray says squash players couldn't win a point off tennis players and vice versa, but I think we might just leave that for another week. Let us know uh, on Twitter or on email. George, you, have you got I, some I angry squash players? No, no. I, I mean, I, I play a bit of squash as well, and I know it's obviously a completely different level, but I did... I think Murray's wrong there. I think a tennis player can win a point against right. a squash player. I think it's okay. harder for a squash player to come to tennis. There's a lot more involved technically in tennis that I don't think like a, a tennis player with just general racket skills couldn't hit a good enough serve in squash okay. to maybe win a point. Well, listen, it, uh, let us know via email, tennisunfiltered at gmail.com or on Twitter at unfiltertennis. Uh, let us know how you think you'd get on uh, squash versus tennis, tennis versus squash. I think that's going to get people quite... Uh, excited. Um, I want to mention, I mentioned Zhuhai earlier, but Beatrice Haddad Meyer won the title there, uh, beating um, Sen Chin Wen, which I wanted to mention because A, uh, two points. Uh, a, there was a really good crowd in for the final, and obviously it helps having a Chinese player in the final, but I just wanted to note, given that we've slagged off Chinese events for not getting good crowds in, that there was a good crowd in for that one. Um, and B, bloody hell you'd hate to play Beatrice Haddad Meyer. She might be the grittiest player. Like, I, she just, she's so unfazed by that kind of stuff. Like, she absolutely loved the fact that she was hitting some amazing shots and getting no, like, cheering whatsoever. I think she won the final in two tie breaks in the end, and I was just uh, admiring her um, her bloody-mindedness of getting that victory. Haddad Myring, maybe. Oh, sure. I knew that was coming. I knew that was coming as soon as you said it. That might be a that might be a ban. Um, it's that's certainly uh, an unsportsmanlike conduct warning, George. It's 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 got to be a code. Um, the only other two things I wanted to mention: one um, quite sad, uh, and one quite happy. So I'll start with the sad. Um, one very rarely hears hears from Pete Sampras these days. Um, uh, and he himself starts this statement by saying, as most have come to know, I'm a pretty quiet and private person. However, this past year has been an exceptionally challenging time for my family. I've decided to share what's been going on. Last December, my wife, Bridget, was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And since then, she has had major surgery and pushed through chemotherapy and continues with targeted maintenance therapy. It's hard to watch someone you love go through a challenge like this. However, seeing our boys step up and be such strong supporters of Bridget, myself and each other has been amazing. Watching Bridget continues to be an incredible mum and wife throughout it all has been inspiring. I've also learned that it's very hard to reach for support when something is simply too hard to talk about. With that said, I will end this humbly asking for good thoughts and prayers for our family as Bridget continues to thrive on her healing journey. Thank you. Um, I think we all echo that and um, send our good thoughts and prayers, which I know is utterly useless in situations like that, but it's all we can do. And um, yeah, wishing Pete and Bridget and, and their family the all the very best and hope for, for good news when we hear from them next time. Um, the other thing that I think George pointed out on our Twitter group, which was really uplifting, um, was a tweet from a chap called Arthur DeLay, uh, who is just an amateur tennis player, really. And he posted a video uh, on Twitter saying, despite, well, in French, but translated, despite my disability, I play tennis with passion and I follow the example of Stan Wawrinka. Uh, Stan, ready for some balls next week at the Paris Masters? Personally, I dream of it. Uh, and Stan replied with a series of emojis that I, I think me meant DM me, like inbox me. 
And um, it, as Stanford Brinker often does, he delivered. And he went and had a hit with uh, with Arthur. And uh, he would give him a good runaround, to be fair. I think Stan might be back on the physical training sessions after that. Um, <laughs> but I I don't know how much there is to say about it, like Calvin. But I do get the impression that Stan, when he eventually does go, is going to be a real loss on tour. Like I certainly know the bartenders of the cities will be disappointed when he goes. <laughs> yeah. Um, again, it's it's a weird one. Isn't it? I mean, he's, he's the same age as Murray. And he was out he, injured for a long time. I know he's not got the same... Like, he's a he bit older than Murray, isn't he? Well, he might be. He might be a bit older. He's not younger. Yeah. Um, but I mean, what he tends to have done, I noticed that this in Stockholm last week, is he kind of like... He found a way of kind of like acceptable tanking, I think. <laughs> he definitely tanked in Stockholm, whereas like he thinks, right, I'm not winning this match. I'm getting out of here as soon as possible. Um, and it's not like it, and it, he seems to figure out early in matches. There's no use in putting myself through this. This match is um, it's not happening today. I'm just sacking it off. Um, and I've seen him do it about two or three times this year. But um, yeah, hmm. seems to be enjoying his tennis. But yeah, he seems like a good good lad, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, George, I'll, I'll throw to you for any other business. I suppose we should be talking about ATP finals qualification. You've written Ben Shelton, who is already out of what I think <laughs> Ben Shelton basically had to win Paris, win wherever he's playing next week and hope that quite a lot of other players lost first round, right? It was pretty slim anyway. Yeah, I think winning Paris might have potentially, but anyway, I mean, yeah, he needed a bit of a miracle. I mean, it's interesting because you've got, I think it's Sissipas, Zverev and Runa who are currently holding the spots. Sissipas mm. would need a, a series of very unfortunate results to qualify, but hasn't done it mathematically yet. Um, but Runo is particularly vulnerable, given mm. he's playing pretty... Well, he reached the semis this he's week. He's not in great, great nick. He's not yeah. in great form. and But I still think there's a, a couple hundred points people need to make up. But it's always well, I think it's an interesting catch, angle. Her- You'd think her catch is the big risk because he's a, a he's great indoors. He's obviously just reached a final. He's in good nick. I haven't looked at his draw in Paris to be fair, um, but he can beat anyone indoors. Really, you'd say like he, he's got a chance. So yeah, yeah, that weapon, that weapon. It's just hard to. Um, it's it, it's a hell of a serve. I've seen it up close and personal indoors actually in um, in uh, Antwerp, and if, he, bloody hell, he hits it hard. <laughs> If if I mean I know Rune's maybe not in any kind of form at the minute, but I have to say if if was Rune as the final eight and and her caps to a degree, I think we'd be looking at one of the strongest eights we've seen at the ATP finals in many years. Like, I, I really do. I think they are close to the best eight guys out there right now. Mm. I would say. Yeah, and and they're all playing. I mean, maybe yeah, yeah, they're all playing pretty well. To be fair, I mean, Zverev's maybe had a little bit of a dip, but has had results in fairly recent memory to yeah i think that's probably a good point george i I was actually thinking i was out for a run the other day and i i left myself a very panting voice note that like um like the paris masters it is probably well i don't know the ins and outs of the politics but a masters event is going to go next year um or maybe the year after and it's going to go to saudi arabia probably in february um why do you want to go? Can they just add one? Add one. Yeah. I don't know. No, I, add one. I think I'm, I'm I think just add it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, it, let, okay. For the sake of argument, let's say one's going to go. I wouldn't be that sad to see the Paris Masters go. Like it's okay on, on the pros. 
they make it a really good event. I like their little walkout tunnel. Like it feels like a real event. The crowd are pretty involved. Um, so in that sense, I like it. But it, you know, Paris already has a major tennis tournament. Um, it's at the arse end of the season, like where about half the time, half the top 10 aren't there because they're all knackered or injured or fucked or have already qualified for ATP Tour Finals and just find a reason not to be there. Um, and so you get weird winners as kind of testament to that. So I just, and the tennis season's too long anyway, so I wouldn't be that sad. I mean, I'm sure people will maybe get in touch who've been to the Paris Masters and will tell me how a wonderful event it is and what it does for the community and this, that, and the other. But I'm a bit like, mm, I'm not convinced we need it. I've stunned them into I, silence. I, I actually don't. It could be somewhere else. It could be somewhere else. And you, sh- you shouldn't have. Although we were talking, you know, we're talking about having queens as a Masters, and we've got Wimbledon. Yeah, we probably don't deserve that, well. do we? Mm. Yeah, but um, I don't know again who would take it. That's the thing. I'm sure there are places. I'm sure like Brazil would love it, but Germany, Cameron, Germany. Yeah, Germany probably could. They used to have a Masters. Hamburg used to be a Masters. Mm. Um, that would they, make the most sense to me. Somewhere in carpet. somewhere in Central Europe, get back yeah. on carpet. Absolutely, Poland. Maybe yeah, I don't know. Or like a, rota- a rotating license. I wouldn't be against like a license that that floats around Central Europe. And you know, there's so many quite like Poland is a pretty underserved tennis market and is a massive country with quite a big tennis culture. Germany, as you say, definitely an underserved tennis culture in terms of major events. Um, mm-hmm. You know, even some of the Alpine countries, you could argue. Uh, anyway, one for, one for another time, maybe. Uh, where's our dream masters going to be when we when we're given the keys to the castle? Uh, I think that is all we've got time for because my dog is desperate to go out um, and is, he's almost given up hope on going out. But um, it's getting late here. Calvin's got a busy day tomorrow. I'm playing golf at five in the morning. Um, thank you very much for listening. Uh, please do leave us a rating or a review wherever you can or wherever you do. Uh, and most importantly, please do come back next week. Podcast Network.